Start your day right with Viet5 Coffee. Freshly grown coffee harvested straight from Vietnam and roasted in Chicago. Viet5 offers rich quality tasting Vietnamese coffee straight to your soul. Visit Viet5 Coffee in Chicago to grab a fresh cup and a bun me to go along with it. Or go to www.viet5.com and use the code in all caps, V-M-N-C-H-I-V-5, to get 15% off your purchase. This show is also sponsored by Circa Pintig, which stands for the Center for Immigrant Resources and Community Arts, and Pintig meaning post in the Philippinex language. Circa Pintig is a 501c3 organization that engages communities through the power of the arts to challenge injustice and transcend social change. Circa Pintig produces timely works to provide education, activation, and advocacy. For more information about upcoming events and to learn about how to get involved, visit www.circapintig.org, which is spelled C-I-R-C-A-P-I-N-T-I-G.org, or follow them on YouTube, Facebook at Circa Pintig, or on Instagram at Circa Pintig Theater. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the eighth season of the Bunby Chronicles podcast. This is Randy Kim, host and creator of this podcast. For this eighth season, we are exploring the theme, A Hero Comes Along. For this week's episode, I invited my friend and badass, Leslie Liu, to the show. Leslie is a Korean-Chinese-American trauma-informed self-defense coach. We talked about what it means to redefine what self-defense training can look like, what does her work mean during a time of Asian hate, and other important teachings that she shares about her work, and so much more. There is a trigger warning that this episode contains mention of Asian hate, suicide ideation, and sexual violence. Thank you for listening, and I hope you get the opportunity to follow the incredible work that Leslie has done. Hey, everyone. So today I am with a good friend. Her name is Leslie Liu. So who is Leslie? Leslie is the founder of Reclaiming Your Courage, a trauma-informed self-defense coach, international best-selling author, and speaker. She values love, courage, and community. Her mission is to save the lives of women globally. Leslie is a second-generation Korean and Chinese-American, San Francisco native, mother of two, and wife. She's a two-time black belt and has been in martial arts martial artist for over 20 years. Leslie empowers purpose-driven women to ignite their strength through their mind, body, and voice. At the start of the pandemic, Leslie was deeply impacted by the rise of anti-Asian hate crimes. She has dedicated her life to stop Asian hate and strengthening her community by helping Asian women find their voice and not fall victim to being perceived as easy prey. She is an ally to the BIPOC, Latinx, LGBTQIA+, neurodivergent and differently abled communities. And I wanna say that, oh, several months ago, uh, Leslie reached out to me on Instagram. And when I looked at her profile, I said to myself, well, this is a person I really need to have on my show. And I was winding down on my seventh season. I was like, I need to do a hiatus. And I told Leslie very kindly, could you wait uh, several months before I begin my eighth season? And she was very patient and kind enough to, you know, be here today. And I am so excited because I've been wanting to have her on uh, the minute that I came off of hiatus. So 
Leslie, welcome to the show and thank you so much. And how are you doing? I'm doing well, my friend. And thanks for telling this, our origin story because I felt like we developed this friendship through Instagram. And I think that Instagram is weird and it can be very robotic. I think my voice memo to you was like, I'm not a robot. Um, how are you? <laughs> how are you doing? I'm sensing um, some overwhelm and stress here, but like, just like wanting to intentionally hold space for you and not even really thinking about like, what am I going to get out of it? And like, I want to be on this podcast. Like I do want to be on this podcast, but like being able to like pull back and for you to say no, but I really do want to have you on. And I really do believe in your work was just like a two-way like mirror. I felt like for you to say like, I see you and I hear you. And I'm like, well, I see you and I hear you and all the emotional labor you're putting in and considering where we were a year ago with the pandemic and Asian hate, I was like, I saw everybody falling down like towers. And so it really became, yeah, those of us who are doing this type of work, we're all beat down right now. So it really just be able to like hold each other in this place of like, yeah, I just really want to know how you're doing, Randy. So I'm happy I'm here. Oh, thank you so much, Leslie, for your friendship. And and also in that time uh, when I was on hiatus, I was always keeping an eye on what you've been doing and the work that you've been doing in self-defense is very important and very much a necessity in our community, but it's the work that you do that's also very unique. That's not your typical self-defense uh, lessons. And uh, so the first question I'd like to ask you is who's a hero in your life or who is a hero that has informed the work that you've been doing? It's a difficult question because heroes didn't exist for me growing up in the sense of like Hollywood and representation. There were no like Shang-Chi's and people like that. And for the longest time, I talk about this openly that my mother was always my hero, right? Like my mom is tough as nails, raised me as a single mom, but I really have to unpack a lot of intergenerational trauma when it comes to my mom. And there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of healing that I've had to work through in the type of relationship that I have with my mom and me being a mom today. And so it's complicated. She is my hero, but at this, and so like the best parts of me, right. Who's like, I'm a badass. I'm like, I'm gonna speak up and I'm not going to take anyone's crap. Like that came from my mom but she's also like my deepest enemy. And those are like demons that I have to fight. It's like, that's my hero. And my image of her gets broken into pieces because of poverty, mental health, and kind of these experiences that we've gone through. So that was a very Korean answer. Cause I'm like, this is kind of like a K drama. Like, it's just so complex. And it's like so much drama when I think about like, who's a hero? Like I didn't, have too many role models and I didn't have any heroes to really elevate towards yeah I find it very relatable actually because I did not have many heroes growing up and I think I had to wait until I was an adult to start feeling like there were heroes because we weren't taught about our history of Asian Americans that's a big problem and and I didn't and as Vietnamese and Cambodian 
we were only taught about us, our community being victims of genocide, of poverty, of, of other forms of trauma. And with my own parents, like I wanted to consider them as a hero, but they were also my deepest enemies too, as you mentioned about your mom. Like I love my parents uh, with all my heart, but at the same time, like I can't heroicize some of the trauma that they had done towards me, you know? And, and also this is the consequences of diaspora, the consequences of intergenerational trauma, right? Yeah, and so I don't, I mean, I do love Hollywood movies, but I don't, especially when you're thinking about self-defense and people always like to point reference to Wonder Woman and all these characters that they love. I'm like, that's cool. But like, I don't like to romanticize the concept of a hero, especially for women and physically defending themselves. I'm like, I don't want to mislead anyone to believe that you are bulletproof or um, I, I think it's so nuanced to be a hero where the hero means. I'm like, I'd rather be a leader than a hero. I don't want to be anyone's savior. I don't want to be anyone's hero. Um, so yeah, and I also don't want to be full of myself when I say like, I think I'm the hero of my own story because I did break these patterns and I'm doing it for the sake of my children. So like, I'm like, I feel like a hero. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I think this is this is the kind of conversations that, we have to have with ourselves and also having to confront about the people in our lives and how do we get through the complications in our relationships with them and also with ourselves as a result. Um, in your work uh, in self-defense training, I was actually very curious to know what was your experience in self-defense training prior to starting your own consultation? Yeah, so be before starting Reclaiming Your Courage, I, I only knew how people know self-defense. What happens? You usually go to the gym or you usually go to a training that's led by a man. And it's, it's very like, okay, for a couple of hours, we're going to do things like teach you how to poke someone in the eye, hold your pepper spray, kick someone in the groin. And for me, as someone who's been a sexual assault survivor, someone who's been verbally abused, someone who has been attacked on the street, there was just an element for me that like I didn't receive when I was going into these spaces, like even though I have training, there just wasn't any room for me to process my experiences. And there was always me kind of questioning like, hey, I'm a big girl. I don't move that way. Like, how could I make this work for me? But what I started experiencing as I was teaching self-defense is that there's always a handful of people in the class that get stuck. And so usually what happens is you have the male instructor just do the technique, right? And then you have the other people in the class who kind of have this like, I'm gonna encourage this person by yelling at them. Like, just do it. They'll like roll their eyes and be like, how come they're not getting it? And that always stuck with me outside looking in and that really started my quest to say, hey, like what's going on for you right now? And I noticed that when I started talking to people about these stories of what was happening and how they identified and talking about this piece of like, okay, so how does the way that you identify intersect with the way that a potential attacker perceives you? was a very powerful question in opening up for people and their identity, whether they identified as trans, 
as um, an Asian woman who didn't feel strong, someone who has been in a relationship with the narcissist and was being gaslit all the time and lost their voice. Like there was so much power in helping support people to reclaim their voice and to build a mindset that they're even worth defending. And then once I was able to help people kind of go into that, they were way more powerful, way more quicker, way more faster than if I just told them to kick a pad. That somehow in this methodology that I developed, that something clicked for them and and they're like, I'm worth fighting for. And that made them a lot quicker to assert their boundaries out loud, to physically protect themselves. It's kind of like doing self-defense before you're expected to defend yourself and this piece around advocacy. So um, I also just was being very real that there are no spaces for folks um, that don't fit in that box. Right. Like if, you know, I was starting to work with clients who were in transition and they're like, well, there was really no consent around touch. I felt really uncomfortable when the instructor touched me. Right. Like I'm in transit. I, you know, I had top surgery and really listening to people and really saying like, yeah, there's a lot of spaces in gym environments and it's okay if that's your thing. Cool. But the bigger problem is that there's not enough safe spaces for marginalized folks in the personal safety and self-defense space. So that's where I felt really intent on creating community and creating a business around serving marginalized folks. Mm, thank you for sharing that. And in what ways have you learned to build that trust with communities, especially with ways in which you have privilege over, especially with trans folks or disabled folks, neurodivergence, and other uh, marginalized communities, how how does that relationship work between yourself you know, as, as a person who is a cis Asian woman who both live in the marginalizations, but also with a level of privilege? How do you work uh, within these communities that are hesitant to trust you? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's taken me a long time to get to a point where I felt comfortable in saying like, yes, this is me being trauma informed and trauma aware is that I think when I was a lot more honest coming into it and saying like, hey, you don't know me. I haven't earned your trust yet. Here's how I'd like to. And three, the three pillars that I focus on before I even get into any of the work with anybody is identity. I want to know who you are, what you value how you identify, consent. And so whether I'm facilitating a workshop or doing something in movement, it is very important for me to always ask for consent. Well, do you have a comfort level in me grabbing you by the wrist right now? Or would you rather have me demonstrate? Just giving people that option was different for them. And then this piece around co-creation. So when I'm in the spaces with community, uh, most recently I have been doing safety workshops at the Filipino Community Center in uh, the Excelsior District in San Francisco. And co-creation means always checking in with the group as to like, how are we feeling about this right now? We, you have a say as to like where this is gonna go. If you, if you want to spend more time in this boundaries piece and speaking up piece, we can stay here 
Or would you like to move on to something that's more practical self-defense based? It's always about me bringing it back to the group, not me necessarily coming in with agenda and be like, this is what we're going to learn today. We're going to learn like five techniques and this is my dojo and this is like my school of thought and just kind of that energy that kind of gets brought to it all the time, right? And kind of this like military authoritative figure. It's like, no, like I'm I'm here just kind of meeting you where you are. And I think that people started really responding well to that. And so I was always asking questions and listening and holding space. And when I got it wrong, I would always ask questions. Like I am always the first to admit, like, I'm not sure what that means. What does that mean for you? I never assume. I always ask and I always try to like teach about allyship and how to be a better ally because I'm like, I want it for the Asian community. So if I'm going to ask this, I want to be able to give something. So before I take something from you, here's what I want to offer. How can I be a better ally to you and your community? was a question they're like nobody's ever really asked me that if they don't identify as my identity like no one's really said that to me Mm. three years since the pandemic began anti-asian violence grew as asian elders and women were the recipients of these attacks and then you know atlanta massacre happened and what was your response to these crises rage anger (laughs) easy um, I started, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you a story when the Atlanta spa shootings happened, uh, s- still working full time, couldn't bring myself up to show up for work, call my boss crying, can't even hold it together. Uh, she's a white woman. And she said, what shootings are you talking about? And I said, the Atlanta spa shootings. Oh, oh okay. Those shootings. And And I was like, I cannot focus and concentrate on work right now. Okay, well, I'm going to give you the, you know, we're going to give you the day off. But, you know, Leslie, sometimes during a pandemic, the way that people respond to things is heightened or different than if they were not in the pandemic. And then I said, blank, I'm pretty fucking sure that the fact that six of these Asian women look like my mother and my aunt, then the fact that I have to sit around with my children who are under five and my husband and have conversations about what would happen if one of us were to get shot, walking to the grocery store together, what happens if mommy intervenes to try to help an elder or someone in the community, Uh, How do we secure the children? These are the conversations I had to have. And I told her, like, it makes me sick to my stomach. And if you even had the intentions to say something to me, it would have been a lot more human for you to be like, I'm so sorry. I I don't want to say anything to make it worse. And I had to, like, coach and say, here's how you could have been a better ally to me in that moment. And then she heard that. But then she also was like, but I also want you to apologize for like the language you're using. And I said, I'm not apologizing for shit. Like I'm tired of this level of erasure. I'm sick to my stomach. I'm sick of asking the question, where are our allies? 
because other people just saying, I like, oh, well, I don't know the violence. I was like, but your feed is not diverse. So you, you have control over that. Here's some reputable sources. Here's how you can get plugged into what's going on. Here's how you can be a better ally. And even after doing that, people still not doing anything. I was full of so much rage. So I grabbed the bat, went on social media and just started whacking a box. I would go on the beach, I would scream out loud. Just all the anguish and the pain, like I had to release. And the minute I started doing that is when people started paying attention and saying other Asian women and saying like, I really wish I could go there. And I was like, why aren't you? Why aren't you saying anything? Why aren't you screaming? Why aren't you yelling at the top of your lungs? Like, I'm in so much pain right now. And no, I feel like nobody's listening and no one's caring and we're just dying. And I don't want to be another piece of commemorative artwork. And even after I express and vocalize, it's still minimized. So um, I, I had to really learn how to root myself in love and courage and give myself the freedom to be angry because there's something about like in society like it's a lot more acceptable to be an anxious small ass asian woman than it is to be a loud rowdy ratchet one and i or to just say that you're angry and i was just always saying like i'm pretty angry like i'm full of rage and other people just being like whoa 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 that's too intense like calm like just calm down it's like no i'm not we are literally dying by existing. I'm I'm upset that nobody's coming forth and showing up. And I understand that people have mental health and people can't always be there, but I just was sick of showing up and like not having the space to feel seen and heard. So I said, screw it. I'll just create my own community, create my own company. Mm. Thank you for sharing your experiences. And, and also, I really hope that you charge your boss for uh, labor for that. <laughs> because, I mean, just hearing it, it, hearing that was very difficult, too. Because there were uh, people in my circle. Um, there was one white person that um, was trying to minimize. He didn't think that it was a hate crime at first. And I just remembered... Uh, blocking him immediately uh and then he tried to come on my LinkedIn and then I just exploded I exploded and I think the words I began with how dare you was the first word that I said and it ended with how dare you again something along the lines of it was definitely how dare you and um and it's hard because when you carry these traumas with you and you're being gaslit and you're being minimized, reduced in any kind of way, like how can you not respond with anger, with rage? Right, and there's something culturally where we've been programmed not to go there. But like, I think that with Atlanta and the Christina Unali um, murder and things like that, we all in the community 
no matter what perspective we come from, we're just kind of like, is this really happening right now that they are actually showing sympathy for the white shooter that he had a bad day? Mm -hmm. Like, it just almost felt like not real that something so tragic happened was so strategic, was so thought out, but that the way the media handled it, I I think that even if you're an Asian American who just traditionally is used to suppression, that got under your skin. And it was a new sensation of being this angry and having your blood boil. And so instead of having this subdued, kind of bottling it up inside, I'm really trying to equip my clients with the way of like, how do we harness the power of that? How do we convert that energy? How do we go into that anger and even allow ourselves to be angry? And that's where I was really intent on starting healing circles and building spaces where people could even just talk about their pain, release themselves, right? And release whether it it was like, just crying or being angry. And there just wasn't a lot of spaces that were even allowing people to, we kind of just go into like solution mode of like, here's like, come to this webinar, you know, read this, read that. But it, I was like, but there's this element here of like, ask your Asian friend how they're doing. Ask your, you know, ask your other Asian sibling how you're doing. Like there's just these fundamental basics that I felt were being missed and we all were quietly suffering. Mm. And I just refuse to suffer silently anymore. And that's why I've devoted my life to not letting other people suffer in silence. As an Asian man, you know, one of the issues that have come up since the wake of the Atlanta massacre is that there's a number of Asian men some with good intentions, offering to teach self-defense or to advocate, but lack the understanding of the lived intersectional experiences of Asian women, LGBTQ folks, folks with disabilities, and other uh, different body types. And in this case, how do men become better allies or comrades for Asian women and other intersectional communities? I love this question. Um, because I think even the most well-intentioned men in our community can cause harm. And we have to remove ego. We have to remove the need to have this patriarchal response of like, hey, but if I was there, here's what I would do. And I would kick that person's ass and do this. It's like, it's not about you right now. You cannot escort our elders every second of the day. My husband cannot escort me every second of the day. Like just being able to come back and say like, I don't really need you to insert your opinion. I need you to hear what my fear is. And I think for allyship for men, it's really just like, instead of jumping to like, here's what I would do if I was there, or let me teach you how to do this technique. It's like, A, people's bodies are different. And just because someone learns differently is neurodivergent, or I'm a bigger girl, I'm not a size four, you know, like four foot 10 girl, 
right? So the way that I move is a little bit different for somebody. And like being, being aware that these things impact what you're teaching people, right? And, and to not get upset at people for not getting to the destination the same way that you're getting there. I'm like, with my clients, I'm like, we will get there. We're just going to get there differently when it comes to techniques and other things that we can try. So I think for men, it's really just like, fighting the urge to be the hero, right? And and being very honest of like, I feel helpless and I'm scared, I think is a better starting point of like, I'm scared. Instead of the automatic need to be solution-based and the solutions you're offering are very traditional. Here, here's some mace, here's some, you know, go, go, do some Krav Maga or something like that. It's that's very true. That's very traditional. And I'm like, I know that you mean well, but we live in a different time. So the way that we navigate these spaces is different. And you have to understand that you've got to ask questions. You have to, you can't just assume, you know, what it's like to be um, a trans trans youth. You can't speak on their behalf. So have you talked to trans youth about what would make them feel safe and secure? Right? Mm -hmm. Like instead of making assumptions, like go like it, there is no one size fit all self-defense glove is what I'm trying to say. So um, I like to tell people there are different ways. And, and, and one of it is to create safe spaces for folks that identify as not like, hetero right or um the normal modes of thinking it's very black and white to think that people are only coming from black and white with self-defense i'm like no there's so many other factors it's it's the voices in our heads it's it's the way that we even gaslight ourselves and we have limiting beliefs rooted in our identities right so um i think that with with male allies is just like just be better about asking questions and listening and not inserting your opinion. Because what you think you know is the solution for the threat isn't the same solution that might work for that person. They don't want to throw hands. And that's where my work comes in too, because I'm like, wholeheartedly, people I work with don't want to get to violence. And I'm like, I certainly don't hope that it doesn't come to that. I don't want to I don't want to mislead people and say, yes, you're going to go throw hands with someone who's like 50 pounds heavier than you. I'm just not going to do it. But what I can equip you with is situational awareness, how to de-escalate using your voice, how to actually build a safety kit that works for you, where you can leverage, use leverage over strength, not kind of this like tough, like, yeah, let's just, let's just keep let's just keep hitting pads and, and lifting weights. That's mm. great. And that's fundamental, but that's not all that there is. Before our conversation uh, today, uh, we had, you know, we were just talking about your own relationships with other Asian organizers in the community spaces. And I know that you've been deeply involved in working with Asian women uh, in the self-defense spaces, but I'm actually very curious to know what's your relationship with Asian women in these community spaces since the Atlanta shootings? I will say that it's mixed. 
I, I think that um, it's not like the gates open and I'm welcome with open arms. <laughs> but, you know, there's something about being very loud and uh, using F-bombs, right, where that can be off-putting to some people, right? Or there, there has to be a level of like, no, but that's not really proper. That's not kind of the space that we want to curate is what I want to say. Um, and, and people put me in a box sometimes of what they think self-defense is or isn't. Um, and I'm like, you know, I'd really like to just be in a place to collaborate where we could support one another. But because I don't conform to the tradition, um, it's I'm not always well welcomed. So that's why I say like, okay, well, I'm not necessarily um, invited to that table. And that's why I intently went to other folks in other communities, really building allyship with the black community, uh, talking to women, immigrant women who are trying to escape domestic violence situations and what it is like for them to be like controlled financially and through technology. Um, I had to go outside of our community because that community love and sense of family isn't always there because as we know with family, it's always complicated. No family is like all good. And so that's why I'm like, yeah, um, there's some, there's definitely some Asian organizers and people that I meet and I love because they're like, I love that you exist. I love that you're doing the work in this way. And now I'm starting to meet those people and, and building these like alliances, but it's taken a long time because then there's others that are like, ooh, don't rock the boat that much mm. because it's you're challenging societal norms. And I think it's even harder being an Asian woman and to be outspoken and unapologetic and rageful and angry and loud it's it it's just not it's just something that we're still learning as as a community to blend and i i haven't quite found that integration it's kind of like all right cool we in a cluster over here you know, some of us who have been doing the social activism for years can acknowledge when someone else is doing the emotional labor. So they're like, cool, you can come kiki here. But there really isn't like this cross intertwining of everything yet that I hope to see. And so I'm hoping to bridge, you know, gaps of being representative of stories and voices. And that's why I love your podcast, right? We're not really following the typical train track, right? We're kind of just saying, hey, here's another way. <laughs> Randy and I are over here like mm -hmm. making a train out of like boxes and like solo cups and y'all can ride our train um, for $2.50 <laughs> and, we'll, and we'll get there, you know? And, and, that's, and that's the beauty of it is that just showing people that there's another path. I'm never ingrained in saying there's only one way. And I don't knock traditional self-defense. I come from traditional self-defense, but always opening up and saying like, hey, but have you considered that um, there's other people out there that we could be serving 
that need to feel safe and how do we build safe spaces for them because they don't usually have access to something that's more expansive and integrative. You know, what's so important about your work is that you don't fully focus on the physical aspect of self-defense, but that you focus on the mental and spiritual aspect of it. I was wondering if you're able to share some of your own, you know, mindful teachings or certain examples of it. Yeah, thank you for that. And I think that as someone like me, who's really struggled with my depression and anxiety and trying to be more courageous about allowing that vulnerability online has been very difficult, right? I did a post the other day about being a college dropout. I'm like, I'm a college dropout. Um, some of my spiritual and healing work came as a result of being caught in suppression and literally being in workplaces where other Asian women put me down, told me I was stupid just because I, I didn't, you know, bark when they told me to bark and put me in my place. And people almost don't believe me when I say that. And I'm like, no, I was really good at not saying anything because it was like, don't lose your job, Leslie. You've got a family to take care of. You've got your mom, you got your brother. And I sat across from a doctor who said, well, you're having an ulcer. And because I was going to the ER because I was having stomach pains, I couldn't eat. I was having chest pains. I was having panic attacks. I was an insomniac. Um, I thought about ending my life because my family needed money. And so really trying to quantify, like, if I were no longer here, what would the insurance payout be for them? What, you know, how much money could I get for selling my eggs? Right. And, you know, having these conversations at home of like, well, what would happen if we got evicted from our apartment? You know, um, so really kind of this, what I'm really speaking to is money scarcity. And so my clients are like, what does money scarcity have to do with self-defense and what you're teaching today? And I was like, it is very much about self increasing self-worth. And the spiritual and healing part of this is understanding how that scarcity mentality prevents you from feeling a self of sense, sense of worth that you're even worth fighting for. And I tell people there's a bigger price to pay by not speaking up than there is speaking up. And in my case, the doctor said, if you don't cope with this, you can bleed out and get toxic poisoning. Like I ate bland food for nine months. And then I finally quit that job, cashed out my 401k and went to India for like a month. And Cause I've never been in a situation where I'd been, I'd been able to choose myself. And so I have chosen myself today without feeling survivor's remorse and guilt and shame associated with forging my own life. Um, so I am trying to really spread this message of choose yourself and, and really love yourself and don't look for a savior. And so when we were talking about males and allyship earlier, I'm like, when we focus on the external to protect us, screaming out for help, all of these things, it takes away from your inner power. And to me, the only way to get to your, to stand in your power 
is to really go into your pain and harness that and use that in your voice, not to be aggressive and not to be loud, right? It's really like, how can I be assertive? How can I tell my story with courage? How can I deescalate things with my voice? How can I build a mindset that I'm even worth fighting for? Because time and time again, these marginalized communities and folks would tell me like, I've been attacked. I'm just waiting for the next attack. I surrender because they don't feel a sense of self-belief that they, that they are powerful. And so it's, it's my job to sit next to them, shine the line back, the light back at them and say, the helicopter's over there. I get it that we're wounded, but we're in the trenches together and we're going to make it to the helicopter. I'm not here to like tell anybody that I'm perfect and certainly no one else is perfect. We are flawed and we are wounded, but there's a way, there's a way through this and we're going to get there. And so I feel very committed when I say I'm here to save people's lives because I value life because I, I didn't want to live anymore. And so now that I place value on wanting to live, um, I freed myself by saying like, when we were seeing all of this Asian hate happening and it's still happening today and there's not, you know, like it's escalating even more. It's just people stopped reporting about it. So people don't think about it. And I, I cried openly in an interview when I, when I released myself by saying like, I don't want to die. That's what the fear is. I don't want my kids to not have a mom. Mm. So um, that to me brings me peace because before I would, I would not, I would not say that I'm worth fighting for. I would not advocate for you, Randy. Like I would just stay in my lane and keep my head down and work hard and not make any waves because I've been so programmed. But now I can say with confidence that I'm broken. And, and that healing is not linear and there is no, it's always going to be complicated and it's always going to be painful and there's always going to be seasons. I'm more interested in helping people who are wounded. I'm like, it's, it's never going to be this scenario where you're like tough as nail badass. I think it's more badass to be like hurt and find your second wind and find a place of courage to come forth to tell your stories, to talk about what it means to protect elders, what it means um, to advocate for the women in Iran, the courage it takes to talk about, well, how come we're not placing emphasis on the fact that native lives get kidnapped every day? And the media, you know, like it takes courage to talk about that stuff, right? And 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 so just really allowing space for people to know that it's okay to be complicated and messy and to be in pain. It's okay. Like I, I, I feel more at ease being complicated and a, a hot mess than this like vision of what I thought was my per, my porcelain mask of perfection. Like I did everything that was expected of me and it still wasn't enough. Thank you so much for, thank you so much for, 
really bringing this all together, making the connections. And I also want to say thank you for being here and thank you for being willing to live and helping others live. I think that's just very powerful for you to open your vulnerability in a way that gives permission for others to share their vulnerability, to know that I'm not okay. I, I'm broken right now. I need the help that I can to help get myself back together. And I think it. I think you also point out that healing is not linear, and that is absolutely true. It's a lifelong process. We we. I don't. The word cure. It doesn't exist. I think we have to throw that out. We have to be. We have to accept the fact that there are going to be times when we will get bruised, but that doesn't mean that we can't heal. It doesn't mean that we can't be empowered to be. To. I don't know how to get to this part, but but to know that we don't have to be defined by those by those bruises, right? Yeah, to not deny that they exist, right? I think that they're kind of like scars that we could look at and say, like, that's that story that I want to tell, right? And I think that um, what you're speaking to is kind of how I think about personal and community safety. Like people are, are scared and they're like, I don't know, how do we keep each other safe? I don't even know how to keep myself safe. And to for me to like, at a macro level, will say like a couple of things. I understand that the fear is we don't want to intervene to put ourselves in harm's way, but the only way for us to heal and strengthen communities is to heal ourselves, to say, to increase that self-worth and say, I'm worth fighting for. Then I'm more inclined to say, to tell someone who's harassing Randy on the street, back off, right? And then what happens if you have one or two other people who are stronger self-advocates that are like, hey, like back up. That's powerful. And that doesn't involve anything physical. Like what is the likelihood of someone carrying out an attack if you have four community members with strong voices using their voices instead of their, their cell phone cameras, right? That we take an active role in owning our, our pain and our fear. I'm, I think that by us embracing our fears and being more open in spaces and talking about our fears as an Asian community is where we can start to become stronger. I just don't see a lot of spaces where we're even allowed to talk about the fear of, I don't want to die in a violent way. Mm -hmm. One of the one of the issues that I also see in our Asian communities, the bystander effect. This is very common, especially given the volatile nature of this world. Do you have any important tips for people who are bystanders who are witnessing violence in real time? Because I know that there's questions of, do I call the police because of the historical policing issues uh, that we see in this country? Um, I'm afraid that I'm going to get beaten up. I mean, there's so much to be said because, you know, to be a bystander, to witness something that's happening in real time, there's also this call to action, but there's also this call to protect yourself. So I'm, I'm actually very curious to see where you, uh, 
uh, where you what what is your take on well on the bystander effect? Yeah, um, I have a lot of thoughts on this. And as I work in the communities around elders and youth, usually this question comes up around like, I'm four foot ten. I'm small. I'm not strong. I'm you know I I don't take up a lot of space. I don't know if I'm going to be able to fight, flight, or freeze, Leslie. And a couple of thoughts is that I share is your nervous system is built to shut down, right? So you aren't actually going to know how you're going to respond to a situation. I, I work with clients of like, I don't even know what that means to take up space. And so just being able to have more spaces to reclaim your voice. I'm always going to bring it back to that. We have to be very clear on our boundaries. To avoid bystander effect, we have to start vocalizing our boundaries instead of just our bodies and our voices kind of just taking it and absorbing the blows. We have to start running scenarios and situations. And in the classes I conduct, it's like, okay, well, what would you say if someone crosses this physical boundary? Is an experience a lot of people don't have. So of course, when you are in a street situation, you're not gonna know, you're gonna have that bystander effect because you actually haven't desensitized yourself. You haven't built the skill set. Like you're not gonna wake up tomorrow and know how to handle these situations. I think that. A lot of people get language thrown at them all the time. De-escalation, situational awareness, speak up. But what I'd like to advocate for, if you are anyone who teaches self-defense in any manner, is that those are just words to people. (laughs) You actually have to give them a structure and a framework as to, well, what what is that what does that mean? Like, how can I be an active bystander? How do I manage distance between me and the threat? And that's what I'm most interested in helping people through is managing distance between them and the attacker. But the only way we do that is actually simulating scenarios that we are afraid of. If that makes sense. It's like, we actually have to practice using our voice and getting comfortable in our bodies. Like, what would you do if someone were to, if someone started tugging at your backpack and swinging you around to actually give you an opportunity to know, well, shoot, like, how, how would I, like, what, what would I do? And that's where I am very intent on, we need to build safe spaces for folks to be able to process these things, but also give them a skill set of like, here's how you use a tactical flashlight. If you have a stainless steel water bottle, here's how you could use it. And if you are in a community and someone's getting harmed, what do you do? Like we actually walk through that in my trainings. This is this is how it could sound like. This is what it looks like. So you have to give people an actual reference point rather than these reactive situations. Instead of waiting for the attack to happen and then everybody kind of be in this reactive state, it's like, how do we build more safe spaces to have these types of trainings? so that people can see and hear firsthand what practicality sounds like, 
what they could actually do in that moment. So it's about helping people walk through those scenarios, mm. if that makes sense. It sure does. And I also appreciate you sharing these important toolkits. This is the kind of education that is very powerful, that can be very transformative in how we protect each other and protect ourselves from these acts of violence and how we work to dismantle white supremacy, how we dismantle anti-Asian racism. Um, if you had to talk to your, say, I'm just gonna pick an age, your 13 year old self, what will you tell that 13 year old version of you? Ooh, I love this one. I actually talk to her all the time. <laughs> I do, because when I think about my trauma, because my assault, sexual assault happened when I was 11 years old. I was, uh, I was sent on a trip to Korea, sexually assaulted in a vehicle by a family um, friend who knew I didn't speak the language. So 13 is actually a good age uh, where I didn't tell anybody because I was concerned about trauma Olympics. And what I mean by that is like somehow by telling my family about my trauma that they would try to one up my trauma. So um, what I would exactly say to that girl is you are not alone and you are worth fighting for. Like you are enough. And that is something that is always at the forefront of everything I do. And it's what I teach my clients because I had to learn how to release that 13 year old girl. And if I could give you a visual about my trauma as a 13 year old is I felt like I was locked in a, in a room in a house, uh, suffocating from smoke and fight engulfed by flames, screaming for help and nobody was coming to save me. And that's actually a powerful question that I, I pose to my clients is how does it land for you when I say nobody's coming to save you? It's okay. I'm here. Um, you know, and that is where empowerment starts is that I, I think of my trauma as like the, the building is burning down and I'm crying and I, and I want someone desperately to save me. So, so 40, almost 41 year old Leslie comes in and kicks the door and reaches out the hand and says like, yeah, you are enough. You're worth fighting for. And we're going to get out of here, but it's taken me a long time to connect that because I was seeking something else, whether it's a parental figure or anybody else to come and help me. But my work is reflect reflective of this visual and the symbol is that you have everything you need to release a very powerful version of yourself that can advocate for yourself, that can shut down a threat, that can talk back to your boss, that can negotiate bigger pay, that can throw out healthy boundaries with toxic family members, like all of that lives inside with you. I wanna say thank you so much for sharing so much incredible wisdom that you've given us. And as I'm wrapping up, where can we learn more about your work? Yeah, um, I'm on Instagram at Reclaiming Your Courage. So definitely um, reach out to me there and send me a DM. I promise I won't bite. 
Uh, I, I'm not a robot. I'd love to hear what resonated with you today. So find me on Instagram and I, my website is reclaimingyourcourage.com. So there's a lot of resources um, that I like to offer people. I have a, situ a situational awareness roadmap to kind of help people even start to think about what would happen in the event of a physical or non-physical attack. And um, any women that are listening to this, I've actually built uh, a woman warrior community on the Mighty Networks platform. So I want to personally invite anyone, DM me, and I will shoot you an invite. But I really wanted to create a space for underrepresented voices to be able to meet other people and talk about these things that we've talked about today, Randy, of like our underlying fears, our limiting beliefs. How do we how do we build community? And so I'm like, well, I haven't really seen it. So I'm just going to go create my own community. I want to say thank you so much for sharing your story. And I am so glad that you are here living your truths, living unapologetically, and, and living yourself, living in a way that actually gives others to live the way they, they need to live in a way that they feel that they can liberate themselves. And wow, I just want to say what a powerful conversation. And I'm very blessed to be in space with you, my friend, and best of luck to you in the coming years. And I cannot wait to see what comes of this work and what you're doing. And I hope that listeners get a chance to follow your work and really take something from this conversation. Thanks so much, Randy. And I just also want to point it back at you that your allyship has meant the world to me. And I mean, you're just a great example of, of a male ally that comes in and is like, I'm not trying to speak on the behalf of nothing. I am here to hold space for you. I'm not here to talk over you or overly explain what that experience might be like. And you are the biggest advocate for me. And, and when I hit roadblocks, you're always the one to say like, yeah, keep, keep going. Because I think that we get as Asian Americans get into murky water because they're not, there's no like heroes and symbols for us all the time. So we are swimming in seaweed and we can't see what's past um, our faces. And so to have a sibling like you come around and be like, yeah, like, yeah, 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 I'm tired too, but like, let's keep going and we'll get to shore is just incredibly refreshing. So thank you for your allyship. Oh, thank you so much for your friendship, my friend. Well, that is a wrap for today. And I want to say thank you so much for listening to my guest and for this episode. So be sure to check out previous episodes that you might have missed. And to stay tuned, check out my Instagram at bunmi, which is B-A-N-H-M-I underscore chronicles. Or you can just type into my Facebook page at the Bun Me Chronicles or on Twitter at M-I underscore chronicles and also before before you leave uh, make sure that you send a five star review on Apple Podcasts and be sure to uh, check out for any new episodes thank you so much and again have a wonderful day